This is Stem Z Perspectives. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Stem Z Perspectives. I'm Hazal, one of your hosts for today. My main scientific interests are in physics and astronomy. Hi all, I'm Stacy. I'll also be hosting today and my interest is chemistry. In today's episode, we will be talking to Dr. Elsa Cook, an astrochemist who is currently a Marie Curie Fellow at University of Rennes. Her PhD work focused on spectroscopy, physics, and photochemistry of interstellar ice. She will be joining the University of British Columbia Chemistry Department as an assistant professor in 2022. This episode will focus on Dr. Cook's scientific work, where she's currently studying the properties of the chemical reactions that take place in interstellar space. Dr. Cook, thank you for joining us. To start us off, can you share your favorite astrochemistry facts or something peculiar about astrochemistry? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really pleased to be able to be involved. Um, so I'm not sure if I have one particular fact about astrochemistry that's my favorite. I think one thing that interests a lot of people is just the types of molecules that we have in space. Um, so in general, we have lots of weird molecules in space that we don't have on Earth. And probably one of my favorite molecules was recently detected is called HC11N. So it's what we call a cyanopolyene. Um, and it's like hydrogen, 11 carbons, and a nitrogen. And so to many people that study chemistry, that's just really a strange molecule. And I think it's so cool that something like that can exist in space and we just can't have it here on Earth. It's very fascinating. I'm also just like, because when I, even when you look at like the molecules on Earth and you see how many different possibilities there are, and then like finding out there are even more possibilities in space, I find that really interesting. So I guess this kind of leads us into the next question, which is uh, what got you interested in pursuing astrochemistry in the first place? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And I've thought about it a lot in the past, and I'm not sure there's one particular answer. I think probably a lot of scientists that you talk to will be the same. You know, you get interested maybe in science and then you follow some small pathway in science and then you just somehow end up in a field. Um, so I don't think there was one kind of eureka moment when I thought I want to be an astrochemist. I think I became interested in science in high school. Um, I don't think I really knew what science was when I was a kid. So I, I don't know. I don't have those kind of childhood memories of looking in a telescope that some people have and just being like, oh, I want to be an astronomer. I think I didn't really know much about science until I went to high school. And then I really liked it. But I liked a lot of things in high school. I liked art. I liked English and history. And I just really liked learning. So I wanted to go to university. And I think that's when I became interested in chemistry. Um, and I, I was the first of my family who went to university, so it wasn't really something that I knew a lot about. I didn't know you could go and study chemistry and become an astrochemist. Um, I just wanted to go continue studying science. Um, so yeah, I took chemistry in university and I also took physics and it just became kind of a natural thing to become interested in astrochemistry from there. Yeah, and I, I did some research in cosmochemistry when I was at university, so it's kind of a similar field, but a little bit distinct that there's a fine line, I think, between cosmochemistry and astrochemistry. Um, but that's when I first learned about astrochemistry and I wanted to go study that some more. Thank you, that was great. That's very insightful. What questions do you think that astrochemistry seeks to answer? Yeah, that's a good question as well. So I would say one of the biggest questions or the biggest open questions in astrochemistry that we're seeking to answer is what is the link between kind of small molecules in space that we detect and then these mm -hmm. big large molecules that we detect on Earth. Um, and one of the things is, is the presence of prebiotic molecules. So molecules like 
DNA and RNA that make up life. Um, and whether these molecules just form on Earth or if they form on other planets as well. So that's a question that we use, we would use astrochemistry to solve. And it's something that we really have no idea about at the moment. I mean, the interesting thing is that we see some of these molecules like um, constituents that make up DNA and RNA. So things like sugars um, and amino acids, we see those in meteorites. So we know that they're present in space, but we don't actually see them in interstellar space. So we don't see them in the regions that astrochemists study at least not yet. <laughs> so it's a big puzzle that we're trying to solve. Um, and each of those puzzles, they, they kind of take these very small individual steps. So if you wanna know how you make an amino acid, you have to know how you make molecules that are similar to amino acids and whether those can form in conditions of space. Um, so that's kind of one of the biggest questions I think the astrochemistry is trying to answer. And you know, the bigger picture question is, do we have life on other planets? So if we can form molecules like DNA and RNA, so sugars that form those, those DNA and RNA bases um, in space, they could be delivered to other planets and then we could have similar forms of life on other planets. Um, and that, that's really a big question, but yeah, like, like um, I said, scientists, they tend to kind of study very specific problems within those big questions. So I don't, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, I don't study DNA and RNA and all these things. I study a very small part of that puzzle. Yeah, definitely. Like there are a lot of parallels between like, I guess, with the questions with uh, astro uh, astrobiology, but like, I guess the, as you said, like the specific thing that you study is quite different. Mm -hmm. um, so like, I guess, leading on to our next question, um, how would you kind of describe your current work and research? Yeah, yeah. So my work currently is probably as far away from DNA and RNA bases as you can go in astrochemistry. Um, so we study really small molecules. Um, and what we try to do is we really isolate reactions. So we want to study reactions between two small species and only those reactions. And we want to see, first of all, how fast those reactions go. Um, and the speed of the reaction is a function of temperature. So as you might expect, space is very, very cold. Um, and so we want to know if those reactions can occur in space and how fast they can occur um, and what products those reactions form. So what molecules they react to form. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm working on at the moment. And it seems to be, you know, on face value, it seems to be a very simple problem, but actually it's really complicated. And especially looking at the products of the reactions, it's something that you really can't do at the moment. And it seems like, say we have four different atoms and we make a, a molecule out of those, it should be a simple problem, but actually no one can measure this in the world. So that's what I'm doing at the moment is I use experiments. I, I build experiments and use them to try and study products of reactions at very cold temperatures. So temperatures that are like the temperatures that we have in space um, and to figure out whether those reactions could occur in space, how molecules that we observe in space are formed um, and what kind of routes can form those molecules. So mostly what I do day to day is work in the lab, um, but I also do a little bit of kind of astronomy. So I, I'm a chemist, but I do a little bit of the astronomy side as well. So sometimes I use telescopes to look in the sky and search for molecules. Um, but mostly I, day to day, I'm working in the lab, <laughs> kind of working. I like to say it's like plumbing. Like we do a lot of like connecting pipes and things. And um, yeah, it takes a, a lot of different skills. <laughs> yeah. I uh, chemical reactions in space and um, Earth are quite difficult to understand in general, so I imagine the ones in space are even more complex. 
Mm. Um, so like your PhD work was focused on the spectroscopy, physics and photochemistry of interstellar ice, as you mentioned a bit about. So would you mind telling us a bit about your PhD work and the process in obtaining the PhD? Yeah, definitely. Um, so my PhD work was also in astrochemistry, but astrochemistry kind of splits into these two quite distinct domains. Um, so we have what we call gas phase astrochemistry, and that's what I work on now. And I don't know why, but we tend to always kind of split off <laughs> into these different domains. So there's the gas phase astrochemistry, and that's looking at molecules that are gases and how they react. And then there's what we call kind of solid phase astrochemistry, um, and that's based on molecules that are solids reacting. Um, and the reason why we want to study these two things is because we have lots and lots of gas in space, but we also have what we call dust grains. So little kind of, just like on Earth, like little dusty pieces of material. They're usually made out of carbon, um, also silicate material. Um, and those are what eventually kind of form the planetary material as well. But there's lots of these tiny, tiny little dust grains all through space. And they're so cold that then we have molecules that condense on them and they form ice. And so what we're interested in studying is what's the composition of the ice. So that's where the spectroscopy kind of comes in. So which molecules are in this ice and then what happens to them? So do they react or do they just kind of sit there and they get passed to planets or what happens with them? Um, and that's a really interesting field because it's quite hard to observe. We don't really have telescopes currently that we can look in a lot of detail at these ices, whereas the gas you can look at quite a lot of detail um, at what the gas molecules are. So that was kind of the topic of my PhD research. I was looking at this ice that forms on these dust grains um, using spectroscopy, again, using experiments in the lab to try and understand the composition and what happens in these ices um, for astrochemistry. And yeah, you also asked about the process, I think, of, of doing the PhD. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a little bit different for me because I traveled a little bit. Um, so I, I grew up in New Zealand. Um, and like I said, I didn't really get interested in science until high school and then a little bit more during my undergraduate studies. Um, but yeah, I did the, this cosmochemistry research and I really, really enjoyed it. And I wanted to do something that had a little bit more spectroscopy in it because cosmochemistry kind of focuses on isotopes and you use quite different techniques. It's, it's quite geochemical, whereas my interest was more chemical and more spectroscopic. Um, so I wanted to do a PhD in spectroscopy and also astronomy, um, and that just happened to be astrochemistry. Um, so I ended up looking for just universities that had programs in astrochemistry, and I probably just used Google or something. I didn't know anyone <laughs> who would know astrochemists. Um, but it ended up being that a lot of astrochemists were in the US, and so I thought I would apply to do my graduate PhD studies in the US. Um, and there's a quite, quite a good scholarship you can get to go to the US. It's called the Fulbright Program. Um, and I applied to that and I got it. So I was super excited and it meant that I was able to go to the US to do my PhD. Um, and yeah, the, the process of applying for me was just looking to see which universities had astrochemistry. So I applied kind of all over the place. It wasn't based on the location or anything. It was more based on where astrochemists were. Um, and then, yeah, I ended up going to Virginia, um, to Charlottesville, and I did my PhD there. And yeah, um, I worked there. The, the PhD kind of involves, um, for those of you that aren't familiar, it involves research as well as coursework in the US anyway. It's different in different countries. Um, a little bit of teaching, and it's five years in the US. So I spent five years doing research in astrochemistry, which I'm still to this day amazed that people pay me to do this. It's, <laughs> it's a pretty cool job. <laughs> 
Yeah, it does sound really cool. I mean, I'm still like in my last year of high school and I guess I'll have like four years of undergraduate, but I'm honestly just looking forward to uh, being able to pursue my own research project. That sounds quite fun. I mean, obviously stressful and like a lot of work as well, but yeah, yeah it sounds uh, quite fun. Um, so something that you kind of talked about uh, a bit earlier, I think this is a great segue into our next question. Um, so while Stacy and I were kind of looking at your website to form questions, uh, we saw some stuff about like carbon dioxide ice and we were wondering like out of interest um, if you would be able to tell us like how this carbon dioxide ice forms in space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting question because like many things in science, I don't think there's one specific answer. Like there's no specific route that we know forms this carbon dioxide. Um, there's roots that we suspect form it um, and it's probably a combination of multiple different routes depending on the temperature and depending on the region of space um, but yeah I was quite interested in carbon dioxide ice I don't know recall a particular reason why carbon dioxide um, but just to give you some context so there's probably about six or seven different molecules that we know are in ices currently in space so the most prevalent is water and there's a lot of work being done on water ice um, it's quite interesting because we know there's lots of water on Earth as well. So that's just a quite interesting thing about space as well, is there's lots of water and ice. Um, so there's water, then there's carbon monoxide, so CO. That's the next most abundant ice in most regions of space. So the abundance means just the most that's there. Um, so carbon monoxide, then carbon dioxide, so the one that I got pretty interested in. Then there's methanol, methane, probably missing one, but that's the that's the majority of them are ammonia as well um and anyway so i started studying co2 ice just because it's quite a yeah it's quite an interesting ice molecule um but there's a lot to do um when you study co2 so you might want to study the spectroscopy of co2 so what does the ice look like in different wavelengths um so i was looking at infrared spectroscopy so looking at how co2 looks in infrared spectra and that means that people could use that spectra to look for co2 ice in space and then I was also interested in other processes involved with CO2. So in space, there's lots of radiation around. Um, there's lots of what we call ultraviolet radiation. So um, quite energetic radiation, and that can hit this ice and that can then cause lots of different processes to happen. Um, so that's something that I was looking at as well, is what happens when these ultraviolet rays hit CO2. Um, and then I was also looking at what we call diffusion. So this is studying basically how these ice molecules move because most of these ices, they're at temperatures that are really close to absolute zero. So they can be like 10 Kelvin, 20 Kelvin. And that's kind of a temperature that you would expect nothing to move because it's so cold. But actually things do move, it's just really slow, but we have a lot of time in space. <laughs> so that's another thing to consider is that, you know, most of these regions of space have been around for like billions of years. So even though processes can be very slow, they can occur. Um, so it's another thing to consider when thinking about chemistry on Earth versus chemistry in space. So I was looking at this kind of movement of molecules in CO2 ice as well. So there's lots of kind of projects focused on CO2, but kind of interlinked as well in, in, in what I was studying. Um, yeah. Thank you. Um, I think the next question kind of leads on from what you've been talking about. And so like, You've done a lot of research with like interstellar ice. Why do you think it, studying them is important? Yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting question. So basically, like I mentioned in space, there's kind of these gas phase processes and there's these surface processes. 
And there are some molecules that are found in space that we know can't form, at least efficiently, they can't form by gas phase processes. Um, and a really interesting example is molecular hydrogen, so H2. So actually, there's tons of hydrogen in space. It's the most abundant molecule. But yet, if we didn't have these dust grains, if we didn't have the ice, we couldn't form it. We have no way to form this molecular hydrogen. And so actually what happens is two hydrogen atoms land on the dust or land, when I say dust and ice, it's kind of interchangeable because most of this dust has ice on it. But anyway, they, they land on top of this ice or the dust and then they meet another hydrogen on there. And then it means they can form the molecular hydrogen. And that just wouldn't happen from the gas phase. So these dust, these dust um, grains, they can bring together atoms or they can bring together molecules that would just have no chance to meet in the gas phase. And it means we can form molecules that just wouldn't form otherwise. Um, so that, that's the reason why we study it. Um, and also I think the, the dust grains tend to form more complicated molecules, what we call complex organic molecules. It's a term that we use in astrochemistry, but I think chemists don't like because we think a molecule that has six or more atoms is complex. <laughs> um, but these dust grains are known to form these complex molecules. So things like that could be precursors to prebiotic molecules, so things that could potentially form amino acids. So that's why we're quite interested in the processes that are occurring on the dust compared to the gas phase where we don't really expect these more complicated molecules to form. So something you mentioned earlier was kind of how your work involves uh, working like designing experiments in a laboratory and kind of going off of that. Mm. Um, so I was kind of curious as to like, what the, how like the emulation process works, like uh, kind of imitating the environment in space in a laboratory environment, and I guess also the challenges that come with that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's kind of two aspects of doing experiments in astrochemistry. One of them is like what you mentioned, trying to like emulate or simulate the environment directly. And the other is to kind of be able to pull out a single process and just study that. And that's not really a simulation type experiment that's an experiment where we would get out an individual process and then we could apply it to astrochemistry. So I've kind of done a mixture of those things. Um, the problem is you can never really simulate space on earth. <laughs> um, so one of the things that we try to do is we make vacuum chambers. So we basically create a, a chamber, so a box made out of metal usually, and we just used vacuum pumps to pump out all of the air but we can never make a vacuum that's as good a vacuum as space. It's technically not possible. Um, so in a, in a sense, it is simulating the environment of space, but not directly. And really the reason why we do it is to avoid other processes happening. So if we were to study, you know, for example, these ices, and we were just to study them in the room under atmospheric pressure, there would be all these other processes happening. We couldn't study the process that we were interested in. So creating the vacuum chambers more Though it is kind of a simulation of space, it's more to make sure that we're studying the thing that we want to study. Um, but yeah, then there's other kind of simulation aspects. So for example, when I talked about the ultraviolet radiation, we do try to directly simulate the ultraviolet radiation that's present in space. Um, so during my PhD, I tried to simulate that using hydrogen plasma. Um, so this is the way kind of that you make the ultraviolet radiation in space. And we try to make the same wavelengths so that we're kind of simulating what's happening in space with that ultraviolet radiation. Um, but yeah, here in REN, we're more focused on kind of isolating individual processes. We're not really trying to simulate exactly the conditions of space, though we do try to simulate reactions that could happen in space. Um, 
but yeah, for the technical challenges, <laughs> there's a lot. <laughs> um, of course, like I mentioned, you know, we, we try to create these vacuums. That's quite an expensive thing to do. Um, particularly in Wren, we have a really unique experiment. It's the only one in the world and we use these vacuum pumps to create our vacuum that are kind of the size of small cars. So they're really gigantic and you can imagine it's not a, a thing that's cheap to build. Um, and, and funding for science is just getting scarcer and scarcer. So that's a, a big challenge in building these experiments and then just getting people with the expertise to be able to build them and building things that have never been built before. You know, if it hasn't been built before anywhere on earth, no one knows how to build it. So you have to kind of be creative and, and work with what you have and try things out. Like we're definitely experimentalists. So we will work on something, try it. If it doesn't work, we try a different approach. And um, yeah, it's, I think an experimentalist is a very particular type of scientist who likes to do that kind of thing. Like, test things out and see results come in and and then try again so it's a job that I really enjoy. Thank you for that. Um, I think I was just going to say like in general whenever I hear about astronomy is usually about astrophysics and it's really interesting today to hear a lot more about astrochemistry so like my question to you now is like what do you could you tell us a bit about the intersections between astrochemistry, astrobiology and astrophysics? Yeah, 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 definitely. I think astrophysics, it probably in terms of people knowing what they are, I think it goes astrophysics, astrobiology, and then astrochemistry. Because <laughs> I think every time I say I'm an astrochemist, you, you just get a blank face, like no one's really heard of it. <laughs> um, but definitely they all intersect. Um, it's very interdisciplinary. So you could go to university and study astrophysics and become an astrochemist in graduate school or even later. Um, or you could go and study chemistry, you could go and study biology. Um, the nice thing is I think astrochemistry sits between astrophysics and astrobiology. So astrophysics, I think, focuses more on smaller things. So particles, um, things that I don't really understand, like dark matter <laughs> and all of these, these um, really interesting things that other people are studying that are much smarter than I am. Um, but yeah, so they study things like particles, quarks, electrons and things. And then once you form a bond, so a chemical bond involving electrons, that's when you get to astrochemistry, the same like physics, chemistry to biology. Um, and then from chemistry to astrobiology, it's when you're studying these bigger molecules. Though again, you know, they're so linked, like in astrochemistry, we're studying big molecules as well. So it's hard to put a, a distinct division. Um, but yeah, like I said, the nice thing with astrochemistry is you're kind of between those. So you could come from all of the different avenues. Like a lot of people that I know studied astrophysics and they have a lot more knowledge of the physical side um, and they tend to use astrochemistry as a tool to understand physics. So they might look at molecules and not be interested at all about reactivity, but that molecule can tell them something about the temperature of that region of space, or it can tell them some information that they want to understand the physics. Whereas like, I'm not particularly interested in the physical side, but I'm really interested in the chemistry. So like looking at these molecules in space tells me about chemistry. Um, and yeah, you can also go and study biology and then come into astrochemistry with your knowledge about amino acids or about um, biological molecules. So that, yeah, that's what makes it a really cool field. And I think it, what, it's what makes it interesting to work in because you're interacting with people from all of these different fields and it gives you lots more ideas about research areas to pursue. Yeah, definitely. I feel like, as you said, like the division isn't really clear, I guess, when you cross into which field, it's kind of very blurry. 
Um, and as you said, like, I guess, um, like the background is not too important, just as long as you have like the specialized area of study that kind of helps you with ad not advising, but like looking into one aspect of it. Um, so I think that's pretty cool as well. Um, and the next question, so I feel like you've kind of uh, went into this a little bit at least, um, like with your previous responses, um, but just as like a general question, we wanted to ask uh, what your day-to-day -day research life looks like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a funny one to answer because I don't think there is a day-to-day -day research life. <laughs> um, and I think it'll be changing a lot for me. Like you mentioned at the start of the this episode is, um, so I'm going from a postdoc and I'll be starting an assistant professor job. So things are going to change and my day-to-day -day life will look very different. Um, but as a postdoc, I would say my primary role is, is research. Um, so what I would do on a typical day, I guess, is, you know, come into the lab and the nice thing about science is it's not really a nine to five job. You come and, well, it depends on your supervisor, I guess, but in general, you can come when it suits to do the experiment or to do the research that you're doing. Um, so I don't come the same time every single day. It varies. Um, and I come to the lab and I might either be working in the lab doing an experiment, which to me as an astrochemist, as a physical chemist, it's either the plumbing, like I mentioned before, so putting together the experiment, using tools like wrenches and things to put stuff together, or it could just be sitting at a computer pressing buttons. So it's not what you imagine when you think of chemistry going into the lab with lab coats. I think we have one lab coat between all of us in the lab. So it's, it's um, we're not synthesizing molecules. We're not working in fume hoods generally, but we do do a little bit of chemistry. Um, mostly what we do is, is more building up experiments and then taking data. So using computers to bring in the data and then looking at the data, trying to understand what it means. That's a big part of my job. Um, and then, yeah, after that, after we've collected the data, the problem then is how do we communicate it? So how do we make plots and figures? How do we present that data to the scientific community? And if it's really interesting, how do we present it to the public? That's a real challenge because, you know, it's such a specialized area. You have to know how you can communicate it to people who don't have the background that the scientific community has. So in a, a typical day, I might be also working on my computer, trying to write up an article or trying to um, maybe make a presentation to present the results of our research. Um, so that's mostly what I do in, in a lot of interacting with younger people. I'm starting to become one of the older people now <laughs> in my field, which is strange for me. Um, but interacting with students and um, other people and speaking about science is, is a typical day for me. Um, but I think as an assistant professor, it will be quite different. I'll be also teaching a lot more. So my typical day might be, you know, giving a lecture, um, then also working with the research group that I'll be heading. So working with students. Um, and then we also do what's called service. So that means kind of serving on committees um, and helping the general functioning of the university. So that's some kind of jobs that will be a little bit different to what I've been doing in the postdoc. Yeah, thank you. Like you said, research is important, but like if you can't effectively communicate it to others, then it's like downfall. Um, you already mentioned this before, but like the we're just going to ask about the Fulbright Science and Innovation Graduate Award. So like, do you mind telling us how you got it and like speaking about it in a bit more detail? Sure, sure. Yeah, I'm happy to speak about it because I think if you can apply for it, it's an awesome opportunity. Um, so I think the reason why I ended up applying for it is kind of an interesting story. I think when I was applying to do a PhD, 
I had this impression that I couldn't go to Europe for some reason. I think I just got some story crossed and I thought if you wanted to go study for your PhD in Europe, you had to have a master's degree and I didn't have a master's degree. So I think that's not really true. I think maybe in some places it is, but I decided that it would be better to go to the US because of that reason and also because that's where all the astrochemistry was, um, or at least what I could find on the internet. And um, so I thought I'd like to apply for a scholarship because I didn't really know how else you could go from a small country like New Zealand, right down the bottom of the world to somewhere huge like the US. Um, so I think we had kind of a, um, not a grants office, but like a scholarship office at the university that I did my undergraduate degree at. And they kind of went over different fellowship opportunities that existed. So um, also they talked a lot about fellowships to go to the UK. Um, and they talked about the Fulbright program there. So that's how I knew about applying for it. And yeah, I think I submitted an application. I, as usual, I just thought, okay, it's in and didn't expect to hear anything, but it was really great. I, I think I got an interview and then I had to fly up to the capital city of New Zealand and, and give an interview, which was terrifying for me because I think it was with like 10 scientists who were all sitting around a table and I had to give a presentation. Um, and then after that interview, I, they gave me a phone call and they said, you know, you've been accepted for the fellowship. Or, and I was, yeah, super excited. And I think the great thing about it is I was accepted around the time that I was starting to apply for graduate school. And I think having something like that really helps your chances of getting into a, a program that you're interested in. Um, and that was really good. I think I, I would have found it very difficult to apply without it. I don't really do standardized tests very well. <laughs> I think many people these days are starting to get rid of these kind of things. Um, so I had to take like the GRE, um, which is an entrance exam to go to graduate school in the US. And I think I performed pretty badly. So I think without the Fulbright scholarship, it would have been quite difficult for me to get into a program that I really wanted to get into. Um, so yeah, it's really nice. And it funds either students to go from, I, I'm not sure, it's not every country, but it's something like 60 countries or maybe even more now. So all of these countries to go to the US to do graduate studies. And it also funds students to go from the US to these other countries to do their PhD or, or master's work. Um, so yeah, it was a really cool opportunity. And it also had quite a big component of meeting other students from other countries. So like when I arrived in the US, we had an orientation. So I went straight from New Zealand flying like 14 hours <laughs> and arrived and you just got put in a random city in the US. And my city was Reno, Nevada, which is just... I never would have gone there otherwise. It's a really strange place to go for the first time in the US. And so I landed and went to Reno and then I got to meet people from like 60 different countries during that week. And they had lots of different events and, you know, explained a bit about the Ful Fulbright program and talked about what life would be like in the US, but also had lots of social events where you could mix with people from different countries. And um, yeah, it's just the, the overall aim of the program is kind of that it's to help promote understanding of different cultures by actually having an educational program where you can meet people from other cultures and and then learn a little bit and come back to your country and have a greater understanding of the world and the people in it to try and make a little bit more of a peaceful world so it's yeah it's I think a great program and I hope it continues for for a long time and I would definitely encourage young people listening to to apply for it. Yeah, thank you so much. I think this is actually like a really good segue into our next question. Um, so we wanted to ask about um, 
So basically, you've kind of experienced the research culture in New Zealand and the US and also France and uh, Canada as well soon. Um, so I want to ask, like, uh, I guess kind of answered this, but like, would you say there are differences in the way research and other academic processes are carried out? Um, and if so, like, how uh, are they different and in what ways? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they're different in a lot of ways, actually. And it's something that I never understood or could comprehend, I think, when I lived in New Zealand. Um, yeah, so I guess starting from, I'll just talk about the ones that I know, but they're different in other countries as well. Um, but starting in New Zealand, so you would do an undergraduate degree, a bachelor's degree. Um, that would be the first thing. If you're doing science, it's a bachelor's degree in science. And even that's at that stage is different to the US and is different to France. So we have a three-year bachelor's degree, um, whereas the US has a four-year bachelor's degree. So everything's a little bit longer in the US. <laughs> um, and so I did this three-year degree, but then because the US, you know, they, they ask for one specific thing. So they want a four-year degree, even though the bachelor's degree in New Zealand is three years. If you want to go to graduate school in the US, you have to have a four-year degree, at least when I applied. I don't know if it's changed. Um, so I did an, another year, which is called a bachelor's degree of honors in New Zealand. And it's just another year, but mostly it's research. It's not, you do advanced coursework as well, but it's really heavy on research. Um, so I did the bachelor's degree and the bachelor's honors degree. Um, in the US, you would do a four years bachelor degree, and then you can do a master's or a PhD. Um, but again, it's quite different to other areas. So in New Zealand, a, a PhD is three years, maybe four years same as in France, so it's typically three years, um, so it's quite short, but in the US it's five years, sometimes extending to six, seven, or eight years, <laughs> which can be awful for people, um, and so yeah, at, at the graduate stage it's very different, and then even going from there into professional jobs, it's quite different, so in the US and in Canada they have what's called the tenure system, um, and so that's that means that when you come in as an assistant professor, you have to go for a process where you get appointed as a full professor, basically, and it means that you have job security after that point. And that doesn't really exist in New Zealand. Um, in France, it's a whole other <laughs> ball game. But um, yeah, in New Zealand, you would come in as what's called a lecturer. That's the equivalent of as a, an assistant professor. And you just kind of have that job unless you were to be fired. There's no kind of, you don't have to put up a whole package of stuff to get a promotion to make sure you can stay at that university. So that's a really different process as well. Um, in France, it's quite different. So there's kind of two different ways to get into a scientific position in France, at least my understanding of it. Um, so there's what's called the CNRS. Um, this is a way that you can become a researcher, but not teach courses. Um, and that's quite a good way for young people to kind of come into research. And then there's also the kind of equivalent position as an assistant professor as well. So yeah, it can be really different. And I think for young people coming into science, it's really hard when you hear everything tends to be based in the US <laughs> just because of the population. And there's just a lot of focus on STEM careers in the US, but then sometimes it doesn't really apply to you. So it can be quite confusing to get that information and then not really understand what's involved in your country. Um, and so I guess the best thing I would say is just find someone in, in your country that can mentor you on those processes and maybe explain a bit to you about the differences because yeah, it can be, it can be very confusing. Um, 
I guess that kind of leads in. Thank you for that. Well, I think it leads into the next question as well again. Um, so we were just going to ask, like, what advice do you have for anyone interested interested in pursuing a career in scientific research? Yeah, um, I guess I would say a few different things. I would say don't be afraid of doing something that's a slightly different pathway if that's your passion. Um, I think you don't need to find out at the end of high school what specific degree or what specific papers and coursework you need to take to be an astrochemist. Like you should just go and take a degree and take classes and courses that interest you. Um, because I just think you would end up in a career that you enjoy more. Um, like I said, the path, it's not a straight path. It has lots of different turns and you never know where it's going to take you. Um, and I think with science careers, it's often considered not to be a very creative pathway. I think people consider scientists to be quite logical thinkers, but I would encourage people that are interested in creative jobs to also consider science. Because I think at least the scientists that I know that are very successful tend to be very creative people people that liked doing other things not just science so yeah I definitely recommend that um yeah I think technical skills are very important as well so any chance that you have to learn something technical take it um if you don't understand don't be afraid to ask questions I think that's one thing that gets easier as you go along and um yeah, when you're younger, I think you might be scared of looking stupid or looking like maybe you should know something. But if you don't know it, just speak up. And, you know, if someone closes down that question or puts you down for asking it, they're the one that's at fault. It's not you. Um, that's usually based on their insecurities. Maybe they don't know the answer to the question and they don't know how to say, I don't know. But I think in science, the biggest thing is not knowing answers to questions. We just that's what we do every day is look for answers to questions that aren't known. So not knowing an answer shouldn't be a reason not to ask the question. Um, so keep asking questions and yeah, follow your passion is my advice. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think, I guess, as you said, asking questions is basically like the, I guess, fundamental um, feature of science and scientific research. So I completely agree with that. Um, and so for our last question, um, you mentioned science communication, and this is a very difficult question, but I want to ask like, um, why is scientific communication important to you? And um, what do you think can be done to kind of bridge the gap between the public and the scientific community? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's what you mentioned before, actually, that, I mean, science is great and it's awesome to be able to be paid to work in a lab and just do experiments and that's exciting individually but it doesn't really mean much if you can't share it with the public there's no point publishing in a small scientific journal some result of a experiment that you did if no one from the public understands it and it just sits there in that journal um, and I think part of the reason why it's important is because of a lot of our research is funded by the public um, and so it's not just for interest that we have to share this this, these scientific results it's also a duty I think of, of scientists to share that result because a lot of our work is funded by the public um, but yeah for me I think it's also a more personal reason that like I mentioned a lot of my family they didn't finish high school or go to university so I know a lot of people that are really really interested in space they're interested in science they don't call themselves scientists but they are scientists they ask those questions to themselves 
And for me, just not to share that when I have the, have the ability to do that or I learn those new things, it's, yeah, on a personal level, I think it's just something that I've always wanted to do is to share that with my family and my community who otherwise wouldn't have access to that information. Um, so, yeah, I, I think science communication, there's a real push for it um, nowadays compared to maybe 50 years ago. And I think that's, that's really for the greater good of science and, and for humanity as well. Yeah, thank you for that. It is important, you know, for not just because, like you said, it's a duty, but like for people to learn more about, you know, our world and like it's important information, essentially. <laughs> but yeah, thank you for that. And um, that's all the questions we have for today. And thank you so, so much for joining us. And we're looking forward to your future research as well. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in with us for this episode of STEMSY Perspectives. Today we learned about Dr. Elsa Cook's research in astrochemistry. Dr. Cook talked about the questions that drive astrochemical research, including any parallels with astrobiology. She also mentioned how astrochemistry is a relatively lesser known field, but important in the quest of linking the smaller molecules present in space to the larger molecules on Earth, which could lead to a better understanding of potential extraterrestrial life. Some of her past research involved studying reactions at a smaller scale at extremely low temperatures, close to absolute zero. We talked a bit about interstellar ice, which she studied extensively during her PhD. Dr. Cook discussed the process for obtaining her PhD, what the research environment is like in different countries, and elaborated on the Fulbright Science and Innovation Graduate Award. She emphasized the importance of science communication and how it's a big part of research alongside technical work. This is something we aim to do more of here at the Young Scientist Journal. If you'd like to know more about the YSJ, head to our website and social media handles, which will be included in the description. Make sure to join us again for the next episode of STEMZ Perspectives. This is Stacey. And Hazal. Science.